uh, need to be addressed, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would, would just do the work that only you can do. And we, we pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Interesting. We're not going to begin Ephesians this morning. For one thing, it's Palm Sunday. But for another thing, uh, I started out, I was trying to go into Ephesians, and uh, I, it, was, it was just like this block. And I, I'm going, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. You're stirring me up in some ways. And I, I think you're guiding me in a different direction. And, and as soon as I bailed on Ephesians, I had just a sweet peace. And then passages of Scripture began to come alive in me. And, and I began to look at things and to get understanding from his word on some of the things we're dealing with. And and it's just been an interesting time, a wonderful time with the Lord. I I love the time I have in study because it's not just to get facts and figures, but it's truly, it's coming before him saying, Lord, I want to be the first partaker of this. And uh, as your people, as your sheep, I, I want for us to hear from you. And so I pray that's the case this morning, uh, regardless of where you are in your walk with the Lord, uh, regardless of, of how you are responding or reacting to the circumstances that we're in with this COVID-19 pandemic and all of that. So uh, just interesting, the things that we're looking at. One of the things that happened with me is, as I've been going through uh, this last week, uh, a passage from Psalm 121 uh, kept coming to mind. And I remembered long before I had any idea about spiritual things or long before I was in a place where I was receptive to the things of God. Uh, at probably 12 years old, I got my first job. I was working as a dishwasher helper. I, I think that's the lowest place in the whole restaurant at, at a steakhouse that my mom worked at. And so she would take me to work on Friday night and Saturday nights. I was excited. I made $5 a night, and uh, I know I'm dating myself, but it was just a great time. Well, on our way to work, we went down. Uh, I, li- I grew up in, in uh, northwest of Los Angeles, up in the hills, up in uh, literally on the flanks of the San Gabriel Mountains. And, and Route 66, F- Foothill Boulevard, went right through town. And we would go from our town to the next town over from La Crescenta. It was, it was this valley up above uh, Los Angeles. And La Crescenta to La Cañada, which was kind of the upscale neighborhood. And, and we would drive down Foothill Boulevard. Well, on my right, I'm, I'm riding in the passenger side, of course, in, in our car. My mom's driving. And, and uh, we would drive by the statue every time we went to work. And again, I was totally devoid of spiritual understanding, but I knew I just had this yearning in my heart for God and that had been there since I was like five years old. And, and, and that time when I believe that God showed me that he was calling me to himself. And so there was this statue and it was 85 feet high. Uh, it was known as the Tower of Redemption statue. I found out later, uh, It's affectionately known by the locals as the touchdown statue because it's a statue of a man with his hands lifted up, kind of like a referee does in a football game when there's a touchdown. And and so people would kind of make light of it that way. But it was this statue out in front of this church that was just huge and inscribed. It sort of had a cover with a bunch of pictograms on it and and all. And and this huge statue uh, inscribed inside uh, was the words, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. And this statue faced north and it faced up to the San Gabriel Mountains, which towered. Again, we're on the flanks of the San Gabriels. And, and, and the statue was positioned to look up to the hills, uh, 6,000 feet over our community, which is at about 1,300 feet, uh, were these mountains behind. And it was just a, a it was a really awe-inspiring thing, even though, I, I really didn't have any understanding spiritually, but I would look at that statue and I think, I've got to know God. I've, I've got to know what you're about. I've got to understand. What does this mean? I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And I want to start there this morning in Psalm 121, pardon me, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. 
Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, this is a psalm of ascents. In other words, it was a psalm. It was, it's a song. It's a worship song that the Jews would sing on their way to the to Jerusalem for the national feast. And so if it was a psalm of ascents, it would be a psalm as they ascended the mountains that they would sing this. And so in context here, they're saying, the psalmist is saying, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's not going to come from as wonderful as Jerusalem is. It's not going to come from Jerusalem. My help's going to come from the Lord. He's the one who made Jerusalem. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And I just love that, that, that he, he leaps right past the physical to the spiritual in this opening statement of the psalm. We're not going to cover the whole thing, just those two, two verses this morning. Uh, but, but what the, the psalmist is saying essentially is I'm not trusting in that which is seen. I'm trusting in that which is unseen. We're going to talk about that a lot this morning. Uh, the title of this message, uh, Lift Up Your Eyes. And uh, truly, this is these are days where we want to lift up our eyes. We want to look past the physical realm. We want to look past the circumstances and, and look to the Lord because he is where our help comes from. So, uh, and, and just relating that, I've been looking at this when the, the stay-at-home order looked like it was going to extend into May and and all of that. I mean, we've kind of known that for a little bit of time and all. I I began realizing I was feeling kind of discouraged. Like, I miss you guys for one thing, and I know you miss one another. And 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 Stacy and I here at home. I mean, it, it in some ways it's okay, it's easy. In some ways, it's kind of hard. And and I know that many can relate with that. And I began to think, you know, these are trials that we're all going through. I shared with someone this week that in teaching God's Word, I know when I'm teaching that there is very often, if not always, some people who are in the body or in the audience, if you would, that are going through trials and, and try to bring comfort and, 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 and build them up. We'll talk about that as we go. Uh, in those times of stress, in those times of trial. And uh, yet I can't remember if there was ever a time, I remember 9-11 very clearly, uh, perhaps that was one time uh, where everyone is going through the same trial. And the effects of the trial are a bit different for different ones of us. Uh, I think of younger families that, that are reliant on income that comes from their jobs, which are drying up or non-existent at this point. I think about uh, people whose health is in a particularly tough way prior to this particular illness getting a hold of them potentially. And, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things out there that we are concerned with as we look out and we look at the circumstances that we're in, the, the things that are around us today. Very stressful in some ways for some people, especially. And that we're Christians doesn't mean that those stresses don't hit us. And yet, there's a key in walking with the Lord that I believe is very beneficial for all of us uh, as we lift up our eyes to the Lord. So as I looked at this, I began praying, okay, Lord, so how, what do you want me to share with your people? Where do you want me to go? And as I, as I mentioned, it's like Ephesians is off the table for this week and next because it's uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Um so how do you want me to, 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 what do you, where am I going with this? And, and I just sensed he was directing me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, as I looked at, this is a, a really, it's just meat and potatoes stuff. Uh, and, and yet I want to go through this. On the tail end of 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, most if not all of you are familiar with that. It's a beautiful passage on love and what agape love, the, the sacrificial love that God has for us that he puts in us to extend to one another of what that looks like. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 14 says this in, in verse 1, he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So, all right, does that mean that I'm supposed to, you know, grow a long beard? I'm growing a little short beard, but grow a long beard and go sit up on a mountain somewhere and dispense wisdom to all the men? No, that's not what he means. It's not that he's not telling me that I need to go start telling the future here. There are two sides to prophecy 
And in context here, uh, we got to look at both, but he's talking about one aspect of prophecy. Uh, the, the one aspect of prophecy is predictive prophecy. It's foretelling. When we look at the prophecies, marvelous prophecies in the Bible, the prophetic word is amazing. And, and that's where God would raise up people or, or Jesus himself, uh, to foretell the future so that when it comes to pass, you know, who gets the glory? Uh, and, and the Lord is, I mean, we live in days where we look at the prophetic fulfillment. I've talked about this whole pandemic thing being a birth pang that prophetically Jesus said would happen. It's not the end, but it's put in place to get our attention, to get us to look up. And and, and so we look at that, that. Those are prophetic words that are predictive in nature. And so they're foretelling the future. There's also another side of prophecy that is forthtelling. And that is simply what I'm doing right now is I'm prophesying to have the gift of teaching includes having the gift of prophecy. So to forthtell God's word, to expound on God's word uh, is what that aspect of prophecy that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14. He's saying, desire spiritual gifts. It's good. But especially that you may prophesy. Why? Verse 2, he says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So, the gift of tongues is a vertical gift. It is between me and God, God and me. And yes, we believe that that gift is for today and that, that there are parameters, biblical parameters for the exercise of use of that gift. Uh, I'm not going to belabor that this morning, but it's a good gift. But he says, but in verse three, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation and comfort to men. So, the, the gift of prophecy, then, is, is, if tongues is vertical, then prophecy is horizontal. It is bringing edification, exhortation, and comfort to others. Uh, it, verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. I'm built up. Uh, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So when we look at this, there's three things. He says edification. What does that mean? It, it, the word Edify comes from, it's the same word we use for building, which is an edifice. And it means to build up. It's to be strengthened. It's to be put in a place where I am open to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and I want to be built up through the prophetic word, not through the predictive, the, the foretelling, but through the forthtelling. That's why our church uh, stands upon the word of God. That's why we don't get up and just give opinions about things or give socially relevant messages or uh, all the stuff. But we stay centered in God's word because that's where the transforming power of, of the, the gospel comes into play. That's where, as we open our hearts, as we are like the psalmist in Psalm 1, is that your word have I hidden in my heart that I wouldn't sin against you. I, I want to be like that tree planted by the streams of water that I'm nourished by God's word. So to be edified is to be built up. Uh, exhortation uh, I've mentioned before, it, it, that doesn't mean that to exhort somebody, so you get up in their face and you're like, oh, well, listen here, Buster, you better better do that. You know, no, that's not what it is. Uh, to exhort someone is to strongly encourage someone. It's even to console people. Uh, there have been times where I've come alongside someone and I've exhorted saying, you know what, you can get through this. And I would exhort you, church, we're going to get through this. The circumstances we have, there's not a lot of clear answers out there right now. We will get through it. That's an exhortation. It, it, it's it, it's a consolation. It's consoling one another. It's saying, look, this is how it is, and this is our response. So we exhort one another to love and good works. That's what the Bible says. The the, the last thing here is he, he, said, he talks about comfort, and it means to give assurance, to give hope, to encourage and so 
our place. It's not just me as a pastor. Yes, this is central to having the gift of teaching is to be able to uh, edify, to exhort, and to comfort, to bring those things. But Truly, it's something that God wants to work in all of us. Paul is not addressing this to pastors. He's addressing it to the church. And so he's saying, desire the gift of prophecy, of forthtelling, encouraging one another in Christ, of saying, you know what? I don't understand the circumstances, but as I lift up my eyes, I understand him. I understand what his will is for me and for my life. I understand that he wants me to be centered in him and that I, I can interpret the things that are going on around me through the lens of his word by his Holy Spirit. As I was looking at this, I began to realize that the Psalms are, are cover to cover. The Psalms are filled with words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. And I've been encouraging people since this crisis began to spend time in the word Turn off the television, uh, just let it all go for a while and, and not to be uninformed, but to just stay centered and spend time in his word. And if you want to spend time in his word and you want to be built up, you want to be comforted, sometimes exhorted, spend time in the Psalms. They're good. There's just so much meat there. There's so much comfort and assurance and, and hope that we find it, it, that vertical relationship is nourished. Uh, yeah, sure. Other parts of the word as the Lord leads, great. As we're looking at the Psalms, uh, I've mentioned before, when we were in the book of Hebrews, we were talking about the pattern that's in the Psalms of Lament. Over a third of the Psalms are called Psalms of Lament. And what that is, is, is that they're there's a pattern there. They, they start out with a lamentation with somebody who's going through, the pattern looks like this. Somebody who's going through a trial or a problem that they're, they're not going to overcome on their own. And so uh, there's a cry then for the Lord to intervene, to help, to come bring his power, uh, different things that are said there. But in this pattern, there's the trial there's the cry, and then there's the deliverance. The Lord delivers them out of the affliction or the trial that they're in. And finally, in, in, in this pattern goes, it repeats over and over with different psalms of lamentation, the psalms of lament. Uh, it's followed by worship and praise. And so you see that the psalm will begin with this horrible deal, this affliction that's going on. And if you skim down to the bottom, you'll see, I, I, I will praise you all day, all night. And, and just that tone to these psalms. As you look at this, there's one psalm that sticks out that is definitely a psalm of lament, but it doesn't fit the pattern. And I'm glad that it's there. Psalm 88. Uh, we're going to breeze through it, not going to go in depth in it, but I want to pull some things out. In Psalm 88, if you have your Bible, turn there, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, we read, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. Uh, summarizing, going down in verse 4, he says, I'm like a man who has no strength. In verse 6, you've laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Verse 9, my eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched my hands out to you. In verse 14, he says, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? And so as we see, this, this psalm opens with lament. It opens with great affliction. It, it, it's a desperate prayer from somebody who is in deep affliction. And it ends that way, folks. Uh, he's speaking from the middle of the crisis here. He's not seeing the end of it. The psalm doesn't give us the end of it, even though there was an end to the psalm. But we see that this person is just, man, they are just going through it. And their circumstances are not helpful at all. They're going through things and, and God is allowing this. And this, when the psalmist wrote this song, it was a song of travail. It was a song of, of of 
deep affliction and and the depression that came with it. And it, it ends in verse 18. He says, loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. And that's how it ends. They didn't have Zoom or Skype in those days. They didn't have blue jeans like our church is using when their friends and their family were put away from them. I, I was laughing. I was talking to someone on the phone uh, last night and saying, yeah, social distancing is in the Bible. It's right here at the end of Psalm excuse me, Psalm 88, uh, where, where he says, love one and friend you've put far from me. And the point in that is, though, is that he doesn't have other people to bounce these things off of. He's alone and his thoughts are just running away with him. He's assuming now that God has abandoned him. He's assuming because of the circumstances, it doesn't name the circumstances, that that this is just something that God is doing to him. And we know if we look at the nature and the character of God, that this is beyond the scope of what God would do intentionally to afflict someone. He's allowing it. And yet his purposes would be worked out. It's a crisis of faith, not a crisis of unbelief. There's a difference. You've got to understand that. There's a difference between a crisis of faith and a crisis of unbelief. We do well to remember the way the psalmist addresses God in verse 1. He says, God of my salvation. Uh, it's in that he's acknowledging two things. This is a remembrance of the God that he's come to know. He's looking back. You're the God of my salvation. I know what you've done in my life until now. And it's also a future hope. You are the God who will save. You are the God who will, at the end of all of this, take me to heaven to be with you forever. Uh, I love that he addresses it this way because it shows us that this is not unbelief at work. This is a crisis of faith. And we too, we as believers, when we're in present darkness, we can lose our way. We can begin to look at the circumstances to not be lifting our eyes to the the Lord and and that we can become stressed out. We can, like I said, I started to, to just really feel the effect of this the other day, thinking, Lord, I just don't like this. I don't want to be in this place. I want to be with our people. I, I want for our church to come back together. I, my wife and I just, we want to fulfill the ministry you've given us, and we'll fulfill it the, the best we can where we're at. And yet, this is uncomfortable stuff. These are uncomfortable times. We look out, we don't know what the end looks like. We don't know what the circumstances, we don't know where the curve is going to, all of those things that you see. And as we focus just on those things, they can begin to overwhelm. They can begin to stress us out. I'm telling you, my friend, brothers and sisters, if that's you, own the stress. It's not unusual. This guy, this guy knows the Lord. It's not, it's not unspiritual to be stressed out. It's not unspiritual to own the stress. The key in this is don't let the stress own you. And that's the point. We want to be in a place where we're looking past the physical. We're looking past this material realm because we know that that's what faith does. Uh, the psalm closes here with no relief. And yet the guy is, he's not angry with God either. We don't see words of anger. Uh, I came across a quote about this psalm and he says, the agonized cry of the psalm together with its absence of anger or bitterness against God shows that there is a real sense in which the psalmist's darkness has in one sense been a friend. It has in a deep and even terrible way brought him closer into closer trust and relationship with God. And as we allow the Lord to work in our hearts in the midst of difficult days like we're in, as we see that there are no answers around us in many ways, we know that what God will do, he will use those circumstances to draw us deeper. He will use those circumstances to grow us. It's not that he does it to beat us up. It's not, you know, I've heard all kinds of conjecture about why this is coming upon the earth. And we've got to be really careful about that, folks. We've got to be really careful. Uh, but the point is, is that personally, he will use this in our lives for his glory and for our good.
In Hebrews 11.1, we see what faith is. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In Psalm uh, 121, when, when on the, as they ascended to Jerusalem, the guy says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the hills. It doesn't come from what is seen. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of all that is seen. So he's elevating his vision above the physical uh, and, and getting into the spiritual, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's a great story in God's Word. I want to spend some time here, too. Uh, a great story in, in God's Word about... Pardon me. Um, about looking at the difference um, between looking at that which is seen and that which is unseen. And it's in Second Kings chapter 6, uh, verses 11 to 17, if you'd turn there. Um, it's about the, the, the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, uh, but Elisha. He was prophesying uh, the king of Syria's plans to Israel's king. Jehoram was the king then. He was the successor to Ahab. Remember, Elijah was under Ahab, who was a really creepy guy. Jehoram, I mean, he... he he was welcoming of Elisha, at least. Let's just go there. But the point is, is that the king of Syria would make plans to go and locate somewhere. And God would reveal it to Elisha. And Elisha would go tell the king of Israel because Syria was attacking. They were making war with Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel. And so Elisha is there and he goes to the king and he says, well, don't go over here because that's where Syria is going to, that's where the king is. And so the king would send out a, 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 a scout and they would indeed confirm that, that was the case. And they did that more than once. And so breaking into the middle of the story here, this is sort of divinely inspired espionage. Uh, great story. Uh, verse 11 uh, here in Second in Kings uh, chapter 6 he says, therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. This guy is mystified. He can't figure out how the Israelites keep on knowing what he's doing. By this thing, he, he's mystified. And he calls his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he's saying, who's the traitor around here? Which one of you guys is blabbing? Which one of you guys is revealing our position to the enemy? Uh, verse 12, he says, it says, and one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He's saying, the man of God, that's how Elisha is referred to, the man of God knows you, my king. He knows what's going on behind closed doors, essentially is what's being said in that. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. So Elisha and his servant are lodged at a place, a city called Dothan. And, and at night, the, the king of Syria sends this huge contingent to go after two guys, but to go and to get this guy that keeps foiling his plans. He's upset about it. Uh, and in verse 15 here, it says, And when the servant of the man of God, Elisha, arose and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I don't think he said it that way. I think he went, Elisha, modern vernacular, we're toast. This is not going well. We have got a real problem. I, I, I look at the scene and I think about, remember the Western movies and, and it's like, you know, here the cavalry, they'd be down like in, in the, the valley and they'd look up and the entire canyon rim on both sides was lined with horses and Indians. It's, it's sort of that feel to this that Elisha's servant goes out in the morning and he sees this entire, this giant military force. He knows it's the enemy. And he says, uh, um, 
alas, my master, I think he just, I, I, I think it was strong. Uh, sometimes the, the words in the Bible don't come through with the strength that it was intended. But he says, what are we going to do? What, ha- what are we going to do? What, there's no way. I mean, these people, there's like hundreds of guys out there. They're surrounding the city. There's all this stuff going on. He's looking by sight. He's saying, I don't see how this is going to end well, Elisha. And I love Elisha's answer. He says, in verse 16, he says, don't fear. Don't fear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at this point, I would imagine his servant scratching his head and saying, are you out of your mind? Do you, did you not look out there? It's us and all of them. But Elisha is looking at things differently here. In verse 17, it says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Lift up his eyes. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I'll tell you, folks, when we're accustomed to operating in the seen world, in the physical realm, and we all are in time and space, when we're accustomed to that, it it can become easy to walk by sight. It gets easier when we're not around people that will will build us up, that will edify, exhort, comfort. We can begin to not walk by faith. We can begin to, to not be looking at it through the lens of the spiritual realm, which is exactly what Elisha is doing and his servant is not. The king of Syria, he's going, who's the traitor here that's telling Israel our position? He's walking by sight. He's not plugging into the fact that there is a spiritual dynamic at work here. Uh, Elisha's servant, we're going to die, period, end of story. This is not good. We're, and he's flipped out. He's just totally taken by what he sees. He's walking by sight. The man of God, Elisha, he says, I saw. Not the physical, the spiritual. God told me when, when the Syri- what the Syrians were up to. And I told the king. I saw, God showed me the angelic host arrayed in battle against us. Elisha's walking by faith. He's looking into the unseen world and making sense of what he sees. Folks, that's my heart. That's my heart's desire for us, for Christians, for people of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, we'll give you an opportunity to come to Christ, to get those spiritual eyes, to be able to lift up your eyes and to make sense of the craziness that we see. These unprecedented circumstances that we're in, there are answers. There's true comfort. There's true peace. And it comes from having spiritual eyes, spiritual vision. And God's desire is to give that to us. Essentially, what Elisha is saying is God has this. Going fast forward, again, it's it's Palm Sunday, and, and I want to spend a little bit of time there. Uh, the people in Jesus' day were walking by sight as well. Uh, we'll see that as we look here. We're going to begin, we're going to look at John chapter 12 and, and go through a few verses there and then get into Luke and then draw some conclusions out of this whole thing. Uh, Jesus is at Bethany. Uh, at his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home, and he had come and lodged there. Uh, we're not going to go into the interaction that's earlier in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. I, I think I did that last year, but but we're not going to look at that as much as we're going to look at some of the things that are taking place here on this, the day that Jesus would present himself as Messiah to Jerusalem, to Israel. It says in verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there in Bethany. And and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So that was a spectacle. Jesus actually raised Lazarus. I love that story. I wish we had time to go into it. It's just a great story where Jesus outside the tomb, everybody's weeping, lamenting, and and he, he looks up, he prays, and then he screams out, Lazarus, come forth. And this mummy comes stumbling out of the tomb, and everybody's so blown away, he has to tell them, don't just stand there, unbind him and let him go. Great story. So it had gotten around that 
Jesus had done this miracle with Lazarus. And so a huge crowd had come. They followed, they congregated there in Bethany. And so uh, he's got this bunch of people there. And verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus on account of Lazarus and the fact that he was alive. That was a widely attested miracle that Jesus did. Verse 12 says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So you have a crowd that's coming down the Mount of Olives. Jesus is on this donkey here. Well, we're going to get to that. But Jesus is going to be coming down the Mount of Olives. And there's a crowd of people that come out of the city and the crowd of people that are with him. And these two crowds begin to converge and and they're taking palm branches. They're throwing them down in the street as Jesus is going to come down and, and ride into Jerusalem. And it's a quote here from Psalm 118 when he says, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, Hosanna. Uh, it's, what that means is save now. And the people were, again, looking at it in the physical. They were saying, Lord, save us from the Romans. Cast off Rome. They weren't interested in having their sins forgiven at this point. It says that they came to understand later but truly, they're, they're throwing these things down, thinking that Jesus is going to come in, he's going to set up his kingdom, and at that point, he will begin to rule and reign from Jerusalem himself, and Rome will be done. And so they're hopeful. I'm not faulting them for that, but they didn't see what was going on in the spiritual realm. Again, walking by sight, not coming to fully developed, full-blown faith at this point, because the work of redemption was yet to be carried out. He was coming right up to the edge of his earthly life here in this last week that he walked the earth. In verse 14 of John 12, says, And Jesus, and when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So again, a prophetic uh, foretelling prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. He He's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see here again, prophecy is being fulfilled left and right on this, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they received the Holy Spirit, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. You ever heard the saying, there's more to this than meets the eye? I look around and I see what's going on uh, around us and and there's more to it than meets the eye. Uh, God is not surprised by these things. He's not overwrought by this. He has allowed it. He is working his purposes through it. We don't fully know what those are. And and again, I I resist and I encourage you to be careful uh, because there are a lot of a lot of people with a lot of conjecture out there about what this means. I believe that the Bible, as I've taught previously, clearly demonstrate that this is a birth pang. This is, it's, it's something that we are to pay attention to. It's not yet the end, but we should be sober. We should be awake. We should be looking beyond the physical to the spiritual. That was Jesus's point when the men came to him and said, Tell us, what about these things? He said, you'll see these things going on in the physical realm. That's when you need to be engaged in what's going on spiritually in your life. Good word for us, church. Verse 18, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So again, these two crowds come together. There's This is just Hoopla! I mean, there is so much going on. They're screaming, yelling, cheering, throwing things. I can just imagine the mayhem of this crowd because they're excited. They recognize Jesus as Messiah, but in a very limited sense. Again, they think he's coming in to clean house with the Romans. They did not realize 
that he didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from themselves. Very often in our lives, we can be in a place where we cry out to God to save us from circumstances. And if you don't belong to Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you, my friend, give your life to him. Come to faith. Stop being at the effect of your circumstances. Stop being frightened at what's going on around us. Allow him to work in your heart to give you the ability to own the fear, but don't be owned by the fear. That's what being a Christian in these days means. That's what it means is that we have, we're human, man. These things affect us. They impact us. Have I got concerns? Yes, of course I do. And yet I also know that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. That's what the Bible tells us. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. These two crowds coming together, the Pharisees standing off to the side, conferring among themselves, not being interested in the least in the message of what Jesus was about, but being threatened because their power base was eroding. People were going after him and leaving them, and they didn't like it. Totally an earthly view of what was going on. I'm going to switch to the Gospel of Luke here for a few minutes. Uh, In Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at just a a few verses, 41 to 44. uh, So you can turn there if you'd like. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, it's, It's this beautiful passage, very profound, very sobering passage. Uh, As Jesus is on that donkey, as he's drawing near to the city, as he's coming down the slopes of the Mount of Olives to cross the Kidron and up into the city, or to go across the bridge of the Red Heifer, and talk about that another time, Uh, probably was a Roman bridge across the Kidron Ravine that went right into the Golden Gate. It says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Again, this whole, the theme of the study this morning, lift up your eyes, see spiritually what's going on. He's saying, you failed to do that, Israel. You did not lift up your eyes. These things are hidden from your eyes now. Oh, they could still see the physical. But he said at this point, He's, he's pronouncing judgment against the nation, against the city of Jerusalem, and saying these things have been opened to you, and now they're hidden. He says in verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build, in you, or build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize... You did not know the time of your visitation. He prophesies over the city. He judges the city. He speaks judgment against the people in her. What I think is remarkable is he doesn't just turn around and write off. I'm done with you. No, he prophesies over the city and then he rides right on in because there's work to do. He would spend the rest of this week teaching daily in the temple or over on the Mount of Olives. We see that in the different Gospels, that that he would be squaring off daily with the religious leaders, and and they would just be setting their teeth against him. and, And this would be an intense, intense week. We call it Passion Week. We celebrate that in the week ahead between now and Friday, Good Friday. And then Resurrection Sunday next week is on our calendar. And that's what we're looking at here. This is the beginning of that week. He's going to perform the act of redemption for the very people who were cheering him here. But by Friday, they would be among the same people that there in front of Pontius Pilate would be screaming, crucify him. I've often thought, were I alive in that day, would I have been in, I very likely could have been in the crowd that said crucify. Because these people lacked understanding of what the true Messiah's mission was. 
He did it for you. He did it for me. He went to that cross. We'll get into that next week. Essentially, the Lamb of God came to Jerusalem. Uh, The date here, the dates are significant in all of this. This is a fulfillment, again, of the prophetic word coming out of the Old Testament. This is the 10th of Nisan. and, and, And he came at Passover to become the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. This was God's plan from eternity past. Uh, he came on the 10th of, 10th of Nisan. That's the date on their calendar. The very day was prophesied nearly 500 years before this. It was in God's word. They had the book of Daniel at that time. And in Daniel chapter 9, we're told, No one understand this. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be 69 weeks. The Hebrew word is heptad. It's a, it's a unit of seven in general, but in this case, a unit of seven years. So it'll be 69 units of seven years. 69 seven-year units or 483 years. 483 years in the Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we have, but the Jewish calendar, adjusting for leap year and all of that. At that time, the decree would go out from Artaxerxes, and he would give them the charge to rebuild Jerusalem. It would be 173,880 days. And that would take them. I mean, this, this is amazing. This is an amazing prophecy, guys. It would take them to April 6th, AD 62 or 32. That day. It was the exact same day that Jesus rode in on that donkey to present himself as Messiah to Israel. We know that Israel would reject Messiah and out of that, that the the gospel would be offered to the Gentiles, to you and I, that we would be grafted in as the wild olive tree. Wonderful stuff in God's word about that. But the point is, is no wonder Jesus wept over the city. He said, you should have known this day. You should have been looking at this whole thing through spiritual eyes. You should have been studying God's word. You should have had understanding that went beyond what was physically happening with Rome. And they didn't. He said, you missed it. Psalm 121, again, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's one other instance in God's word as we close uh, where Jesus exhorts his men, lift up your eyes. In John chapter 4, we see the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He has spoken to her. He has gotten her attention. She has elevated him from being a man to being a prophet, to being Messiah, to being Savior here in this story. And as she goes back into town and she tells all these people and this whole crowd of people come out of Sychar. That's the name of the town, just, just south of Shechem there. Uh, and these people come out to see this man that told her everything she ever did is how she says it to them. Uh, and so the people are standing there the men come and, and, and they say, hey, Jesus, have you eaten? You want to? And he says, no, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and, and all. Uh, and then he says this in, in John chapter four thirty five. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. So looking at this in the physical, there's a crowd of people coming out of the city. Not a big deal. Bunch of people, you know, kind of looky-loos. Coming out to see what this this guy that had met this woman at the well was all about. And uh, uh, really curious, trying to figure it out. By faith, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look at this. There's a sea of humanity. These fields are human souls. And these are the people for whom he would die for. Looking forward at that time, looking back for us. I just believe that what the Spirit of God would be telling us this morning is lift up your eyes, church. Look at the circumstances we're in. Yes, 
understand them. They're difficult circumstances. Nobody's minimizing that. It would not be a responsible thing to expect some weird form of spirituality like we're above all of that. And yet there is a place, like I said, where we own the stress, we own the discouragement, we own that there are things in place that we don't like. We're not in circumstances. And, and, and yet I don't believe, I believe it's wonderful that Psalm 88 exists because we can see this is a person who knows God that's going through the midst of the trial and he is not comfortable. And yet he never gets angry with God. And we can only trust that God worked his purposes out beyond the words of that Psalm because he didn't remain in that place. He was stressed out. That can happen with us. We can get into, when we look at these circumstances, if we're not connecting them with the spiritual realm, it can produce in us a crisis of faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As we lift up our eyes, the exhortation is this. Look to the spiritual realm. Look to the Word of God. Understand the Spirit of God's leading in your life. Allow Him to work in you the peace that only He can give because it's not a peace that's according to understanding. It's a peace that's beyond your understanding. It bypasses your brain. It's a peace that looks out and says, I don't see where this is going. I don't see, I don't know how it's going to affect me personally. There's a lot of questions. But you can have the peace of God that passes understanding this morning and going forward if you simply apply these truths to your life. If you don't know the Lord, if you are not in a place where you have ever given your life to Jesus, time the time is now. These are very serious days. These are very serious circumstances. We don't know what tomorrow holds. None of us do. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen by the end of today. And yet, by allowing Jesus to become Lord in our lives, we can have the assurance that all of this goes beyond our present circumstances, that all of this is there and that he knows it. He's not doing it to beat people up. He's not doing it for some evil mode. He's not evil. He, he can't be. He wouldn't be God if he was. And so you can come away with the assurance that you can have spiritual vision. You can have spiritual eyes. You can have the ability to, like Elisha's servant, to see beyond the veil. And, and maybe he's not going to pull back the curtain and let you see armies of angels around but he will pull back the veil and he will show you that he's real he will confirm himself to you it requires faith it requires trusting in that which you cannot see we're going to receive communion this morning if you don't know the lord pray a simple prayer that's something like this father i know lord god i know i haven't lived a life that is for you i, I, I perhaps have been away from you.